Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about frozen embryo transfers, the different protocols, why the timing is what it is, and what I want you to know if you are preparing to undergo IVF and an embryo transfer. Before we dive into this, I do want to talk about this week's Fertility in the News, which is quite related to the episode topic. CNN published a story, as did many news outlets on November 21st, saying parents welcome twins from embryos frozen 30 years ago. So in 1992, there were embryos frozen by a couple who was trying to have a child. What we know about these embryos is that there was a male partner who was over 50 years old, and there was an egg donor who was in her 30s. The male partner was married to the person who carried the pregnancies. They were the parents of the children and they had five remaining embryos that had been frozen on the West Coast. Now, they decided they were done with their family and they donated their embryos to a very common embryo donation center, which has some controversy that I will go into. But the National Embryo Donation Center, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee, is partnered with a practice called Southeastern Fertility. Five embryos were shipped to the National Embryo Donation Center, and the couple who ultimately had twins born from these embryos were Rachel and Philip Ridgway, and they had their babies born on Halloween, Lydia and Timothy. What is interesting is that these five embryos were frozen with an older freeze process, Now we use a very fast freezing called vitrification, but that was not the case in 1992. These embryos do not survive quite as well as current survival rates from frozen thawed embryos. So of the five embryos, three of them survived the freeze thaw. This was also prior to genetic testing of embryos, so there was no genetics done, but these three embryos were all transferred into the patient into the intended parent who is Rachel. Interestingly, Rachel has other children and they are eight, six, three, and two. None of them were conceived via IVF or donor egg. And ultimately we don't have any data if she had infertility or this couple had infertility. Presumably no, because of their other children. And based on some of the statements they were saying is that they keep calling this embryo adoption. A few things to note, this is clearly not 
embryo adoption. Adoption and donation are very different things. The American Society of Reproductive Medicine makes this very clear. Adoption is a legal term. It has a lot of legal ramifications. You cannot adopt embryos. It's just inaccurate and it's misleading and it could place burdens on certain people. This is embryo donation. A couple has completed their family or a person has completed their family. They are donating their embryos for other programs to use. The reason why this adoption word is very tricky is that the National Embryo Donation Center is a private Christian-led organization that makes a lot of money. Because they call it adoption, they require a family assessment. They require that couples are genetically male and genetically female. Single people or people in same-sex relationships do not qualify for their embryo adoption. You have to have been married for three years before you are a candidate. And they make you pay for the whole process before you have the transfer, before you pick embryos. There's a lot of stuff that in the field, I think is ethically really poor how they do things. I'm thrilled that these babies are born. Do not get me wrong. But I feel like they are a very discriminatory, successful financial organization. And they are preying off somebody's desire to allow their unused embryos to help somebody else have a baby, which is a wonderful altruistic thing. Yet they are being so discriminatory about how they do it. We don't make people have a family assessment before they go through IVF. We don't determine if somebody's suitable to be a parent before you're able to get pregnant. I don't require that you are male and female and married for three years before you're allowed to do IVF. So why are we making people jump through these hoops? It's because of the money that they can make doing this and the donations that they can get. Back to the point also, this couple had three embryos. All three of these embryos were transferred. That's also outside the standard of care. Standard of care for genetically untested embryos, specifically in a person who has had prior children and from embryos from donor egg. So this genetic source of the eggs was in her early 30s. You should never be transferring more than two embryos. And this is because of the risk of multiples, specifically high order multiples. The risk of an embryo splitting into identical twins is higher than what is out there in just natural conception. So transferring three embryos was exceedingly risky and subpar care. However, luckily in this case, they did have multiples, they did have twins, and they were born at a healthy weight, and reportedly they're doing very good. This is honestly representing something I think is really important in twofold. One, embryos can be frozen for a substantial amount of time, and that should make you feel good. I think we use IVF, and I talk to my patients about this specifically, to help you have the family you want to have later. Fantastic. That means you can freeze embryos and feel confident that you hopefully have a future child in there if you want to have more than one child in your family. And people ask me this all the time, are my embryos going to get freezer burn? And I think this is just a really good example that, no, they're not going to. The other thing I want to say, or two other things about this topic before we dive into embryo transfers and protocols, is that you should keep your embryos for a substantial amount of time until if the worst thing ever, ever happened, if your existing children died in a car accident, if a child got really sick, if you had one child left, if your spouse died, 
that there would be zero percent chance, no way, no how that you would ever add to your family. And that's the moment where you would consider, what do I do with my embryos? So for most people, that's usually around age 50. And I know that sounds like a lot of time paying embryo storage fees, but if you're 46 and something terrible happens in your family and you feel like a new life is what your family needs, and I'm extremely biased because I see this, these are real life circumstances. If you have embryos, we can still make that happen. Otherwise, you're looking to egg donation or embryo donation, which is fine. But if you previously had embryos and you got rid of them and now you need them, you can't go backwards and undo that. So you should keep them until you're absolutely sure that you do not need them. And then what do you do with your embryos? This is a really hard question because in the U.S. it's very hard to do research on embryos. That limits a lot of our availability. If you are interested in embryo donation, I think that is such an altruistic thing. I think there's a lot of caveats. Remember, nothing's anonymous in this world anymore. Genetic testing by third-party direct-to-consumer sites are connecting people with connected DNA. So one, do not think that your child may not find out that they have a true genetic sibling out there. So do you want to go through an anonymous site? Do you want to use a company that is profiting off discrimination? Do you want to consider an option where that is more of a known donation so that what role might you have in that child's life? Some, none, what about your children? I think it's very naive in this world to think that your children or your family is going to be disconnected from that child. By no means does that mean don't do it. I think there are wonderful, beautiful, beautiful options out there. But I think sometimes we don't understand the downstream impact of one decision we make. So truly think it over. But in the short end, I don't support practices that promote discrimination. Totally against what I believe in and what I think our field needs to stand for. And I also want to make sure that you are keeping your embryos absolutely as long as you possibly could need them. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? 
but women belong in scientific research. Their essential and ritual knows this. I choose ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take. And I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. All right. Well, I get asked questions about the frozen embryo transfer all the time. So let's start at the beginning. Not every embryo transfer is a frozen embryo transfer. There's a difference in a fresh transfer and a frozen transfer. Probably, I don't know, in our practice, 98% of the transfers we do are frozen. But officially, there are two types. So a fresh transfer is a transfer that happens when an embryo has never been frozen. This means that you have your egg retrieval done on what we consider day zero. That's the day of fertilization. The embryos then are growing out to day five or six in order to be frozen. However, if you're doing a fresh transfer, it happens on day five, the end. An embryo needs to be ready on day five. And that's the day you take one or more embryos and put them in the body. And any extraneous embryos would be frozen on day five or six. Day five after transfer is the day the uterus is ready. Not all embryos are ready at that time, and that's why you'll hear me say day five or day six. This is because some embryos just grow a little bit slower in the lab, and in order to reach the day five state, it actually takes them six days. That's fine, but we can synchronize that embryo development with the uterus in a frozen cycle. That's one advantage of a frozen embryo transfer. Other reasons why you might do a frozen embryo transfer is you want to do genetic testing. So that's a huge one. It takes time to get the genetic testing results. So on day five or six, you would biopsy the placental segment of the embryo and freeze it. And then you would thaw an embryo that you want to transfer at a later date. 
This can be really helpful if you are doing testing for genetics because of aneuploidy or age, if you carry a genetic disease, if you have recurrent miscarriage, or if you want to have more than one child. So part of this could be for fertility preservation, meaning what good is it to save embryos if you're not sure any of them are genetically normal? So by doing genetic testing, we have a better assurance that we have embryos that are going to be genetically normal. And therefore, they have that higher chance of turning into a baby. The other reason why we sometimes do a frozen transfer, or why we often do, is that there's something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And OHSS is something that can cause your body to become very, very sick, and it even can be deadly. Not commonly, it's a very rare complication, but it's become even more rare now that we have specific protocols for high responders, so specifically things like antagonist protocols with Lupron triggers, and when we do not do a fresh embryo transfer. This is because the HCG, whether given in a trigger form shot or from a implanting pregnancy, prolongs the hormone production from the ovaries and makes the symptoms of OHSS much, much, much worse. OHSS develops when you have really high hormone levels. So the more eggs, the higher the hormones, and the longer the hormone levels are high, you get sicker. So there's a lot of reasons why we do not do fresh transfers. On the other end, a fresh transfer does save you time. It does save you money. And there are circumstances where I consider it. So if we're doing InvoCell, which is a vaginal incubation device, what we are doing is taking on an embryo and doing a fresh transfer. We are typically doing InvoCell, at least in my clinic and my practice, if you are younger and you have a very specific cause of your infertility like PCOS or tubal factor when you have normal sperm and not a history of recurrent pregnancy loss. InvoCell overall is just another example of minimal stem IVF. So you can still fertilize eggs and sperm in the lab, but do a minimal stem protocol. In these, importantly to remember, the goal is not to get as many eggs as possible. When we talk about IVF and IVF success, we often want to get as many eggs as possible so you can have the highest chance of making good embryos. But if we purposefully are getting eight to 10 eggs because it is cheaper, it takes less medications because your hormones will be lower so you, you won't get OHSS. And because for InvoCell, that's all that fits in the device, we are potentially compromising on your ability to actually get pregnant and have a baby because you're getting less eggs overall. But that is going to keep your hormone levels down lower so you won't develop OHSS if you do a fresh transfer. Personally, for me, fresh transfers are an InvoCell situation or a very young patient with low ovarian reserve who's not going to get more than 10 eggs, who does not want more than one child. Because ultimately, if you want more than one child, I don't know what you have frozen. You might have zero things frozen. If I put an embryo in on day five, I just don't know yet. So I have a very narrow personal preference for when I do a fresh transfer. If you have PCOS, you're not going to qualify. If you need to do genetic testing, you're not going to qualify. If you are wanting to get more than one child, you're not going to qualify. So there's certain reasons why we don't do it. And that's my preference. And every doctor is a little bit different. So the vast majority of my patients are freezing their embryos. And then we are 
bleeding off that uterine lining. So about 10-ish days after your egg retrieval, you'll get that period. And that will bleed off that lining that was exposed to all of those hormones. We also have evidence that really high estrogen and progesterone levels that we see in egg retrieval cycles are not suitable for embryos to implant. That's not when embryos implant in nature, right? They implant most of the time when you have just one egg and a peak estrogen of around 200, not when you have 20 eggs and an estrogen of three to 4,000. So getting ideal hormone levels is an environment that is more suitable to proper implantation. And we do see differences in birth outcomes in frozen and fresh transfers after IVF, specifically larger birth weight and less preterm birth in patients who have frozen embryo transfers versus fresh. So ultimately, that's telling me the placenta is implanting better in that environment that doesn't have so much high hormone. All right, so when we first started doing frozen embryo transfers, we did what is now considered a controlled or a medicated embryo transfer. Your team may call it either. The general idea here is that we, your controlling fertility doctors, are controlling all of the exposures to hormones that you have. This is typically let in for planning purposes with a suppression phase to prevent the ovaries from ovulating. This can be birth control pills alone, or it can be birth control pills and Lupron, or just Lupron started in the luteal phase. Occasionally, people will try to suppress you right off of a cycle, but you might have a higher likelihood of breaking through. So most of us will lead in with some suppression. That's also good because we can do testing of the uterine environment, maybe a practice embryo transfer, maybe a saline sonogram, making sure that something is not wrong in that preemptive period. Once we know that everything looks good, then you're going to come in for a baseline, make sure that you are suppressed, and then you will start the stimulation of the uterine lining. In a controlled or medicated cycle, we do not care about the ovaries. Well, in fact, we do care about them. That's a false statement. But we do not want them to make any hormones. I want them to be quiet, follicle small, doing nothing. You are taking estrogen in this cycle. Pills, patches, injections, vaginal, all those different choices. Most of us will use oral vaginal because the estrogen pills are so cheap. Patches are a little bit more expensive and injectable estrogen isn't really shown to be that much better for most people. But ultimately, everybody's a little bit different. Every practice is different and every personal body responds differently to medications. But typically, you're going to take estrogen in some form or some fashion for anywhere between 10 to 21 days. You'll have an ultrasound or potentially two ultrasounds to check the lining and see how it's growing and to make sure the ovaries are not making follicles. You'll have hormone levels checked, at least estrogen, potentially progesterone if you're not on a Lupron-based protocol to make sure that everything is suitable. You will then start progesterone. You will start an injectable progesterone or you should start an injectable progesterone in some form or some fashion. The data is very clear on this. Injectable progesterone is superior when it comes to a frozen embryo transfer in a controlled or medicated cycle. Think about this. 
Your ovaries are doing nothing. I've said that multiple times. They are making no hormones. When does the body normally make progesterone? It normally only makes progesterone. The only time you have progesterone is after you have ovulated. So if you are not ovulating, there is absolutely zero progesterone. We have to replace it all. And the way that has been shown in studies to be the best is with an injection. I know progesterone and oil is an intramuscular injection here in the U.S. It is not fun. I am so sorry. But you can do it. You can do hard things and it is worth it in the end. Then you will have the embryo transfer on the sixth day of progesterone. Day one of progesterone is replicating the day of the retrieval. So we're timing this specifically on how much progesterone you have. This is important because if you go out of town after you start your progesterone and your flight gets delayed and you call your clinic and you say, can I have the transfer the next day? I can't make it home. No, no, we can't. Once you start the progesterone, the timeline is absolutely started. And if you can't make that transfer because there's an ice storm or you miss a flight, it's not happening. The embryo is frozen. That's fine. It'll just be canceled, you'll bleed, and you will have to start all over again. So using the progesterone at the right time, starting the right day is essential in this cycle. The embryo transfer will happen. It's really typically quite simple. You will have a full bladder. That allows us to put the abdominal ultrasound on and see the uterine lining the best, and it flattens out the uterus in most people. The uterus naturally is tilted towards the abdominal wall in the majority of people. And so having a full bladder is going to make it easier to enter a straighter path and it's going to improve the sound wave quality so we can see that lining and watch the embryo transfer catheter pass through the cervix into that uterus. The transfer takes minutes, minutes. It's super fast. Every clinic does it different. So good questions to ask are, can my partner come back there with me? Who will be doing it? How long will it take? How early do I have to be there? Are you checking any of my blood that day? Do I get a picture of my embryo? How long do I have to wait afterward? Studies have also shown that there is no need for bed rest after an embryo transfer. And in fact, 10 minutes of bed rest in the recovery room was associated with negative pregnancy rates, meaning less of a chance of being pregnant if you sat there in your bed. Now, there's a lot of thoughts on why this could be. If you ask me, I think it's probably because of that full bladder. Your bladder's really full. You're sitting there. I mean, have you ever had to go pee and you're just sitting there waiting? Your bladder is cramping so much. Those contractions are probably not good for the uterus. So I have patients get up, empty their bladder, get dressed. If we need to draw your blood to check progesterone, which may be standard if you have a controlled cycle, most practices will check progesterone a day or two before the transfer or on the transfer day. It's all fine, but you might get your blood drawn. You might not, but then you go, you leave. You do not, after the transfer, need to be on bed rest at home. Embryos implant while you're up and doing normal things. Under the same breath, I tell patients, please don't go run a marathon. Please don't train for something new. Can you exercise? Yes, do exercise, move your body. But please, no more than normal and no personal bests. So really try to spare it back a little bit just to not overexert yourself. In a controlled or medicated cycle, however, the ovaries are small and medically, there's no reason why you cannot work out. 
So if somebody is telling you absolute exercise restrictions, that doesn't really make sense to me. And I would ask them why. I do have patients not have intercourse until after we get a positive pregnancy test and a heartbeat. Your doctor may tell you something different. Similarly, I don't want uterine contractions at this time of implantation. In natural cycles, this has not been associated, but in embryo transfer cycles, it has been suggested. And to me, I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind that anything you did potentially resulted in a failure of the transfer. When we know good and well, even in the best case scenarios, only two thirds of embryos will result in a live birth. So a third of them are not going to implant, even if you do everything perfect. So I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind. Now, the embryo transfer is done again on the sixth day of progesterone. At that time, the embryo is five days old. Even if it was a day six embryo, it's five days old. That's because it took it six days to reach the day five mark, okay? So the frozen embryo transfer is the great equalizer of embryo age. It is now a five-day-old embryo. You, the day of the transfer, are now two weeks and five days pregnant in that wild Two weeks of that pregnancy passed, even when there was no embryo that existed. And that is just normal nomenclature dating back to before we knew about when embryos implanted or when ovulation happened or anything. The only marker we had for pregnancy was when your last period was. And that is what dated pregnancies in weeks. And to keep track of all this data and typical nomenclature over all this time, we keep dating pregnancies the same way. So the embryo is five days old on the day of the transfer. You are two weeks and five days pregnant. You take a pregnancy test usually about nine days after the transfer, which makes you four weeks pregnant. That's equal to when you have your missed period. And at that point, you are typically getting an HCG blood draw. Anything over five is positive, okay? We really like it to be 70 to 80 or higher. Values that are less than that can be absolutely perfectly fine, but the truth is we don't know. The lower it is, the more nervous we are. The lowest HCG that I've ever had result in a baby being born was seven, a starting HCG of seven. Okay, so it can happen, but the higher it is, we overall just feel more reassured by it. You then will get another HCG drawn two days later. And you're looking for a rise. Essentially, a doubling makes us feel very confident. Then you typically are going to get an ultrasound about two weeks from that when you're around six weeks pregnant, where you should see a sac inside the uterus, a fetal pole, a heartbeat. Every fertility clinic is different about how long they will follow you. Somewhere between eight to 10 weeks is pretty standard. And then you will graduate and move on to your OBGYN. And you will be continuing the estrogen and the progesterone in cycles like this up until around the nine-week mark when the placenta is fully grown in. That progesterone is absolutely essential because, again, nothing is making it. We are replacing it. The other type of transfer is a natural cycle or a modified natural cycle. The premise here, your body is going to make estrogen. When it makes estrogen, this is when you grow an egg, when you're going to ovulate. That estrogen is going to stimulate the growth of the uterine lining, just like it does in natural cycles. That estrogen can then trigger the brain, right? 
Typically, what we say is an estrogen level of around 200 picograms for 50 hours tells the brain to send out an LH surge, which stimulates ovulation. So you will ovulate in cycles like this. There's variation. So in a true natural cycle, you're growing a follicle and you're watching it with ultrasound. We need to know when the surge is happening or we need to induce the surge with a trigger shot. It doesn't really matter which one pros and cons to them both. But typically these cycles involve more following, more ultrasounds, more blood draws. And if your body starts to naturally surge, that will tell us the timing of the transfer. Or when everything looks good, you can use a trigger shot to induce the surge and then determine the timing of the transfer. You can do a pure natural cycle if you have ovulatory cycles. You can do a modified natural. Typically, this is with letrozole. Letrozole is a medication that tells the brain to send out more FSH. Remember, FSH is what stimulates a follicle to grow or an egg. The egg is what makes estrogen as it grows. Or you can actually use FSH, gonadotropins, like folosim or gonal F. So we can give you FSH and just directly stimulate the egg to grow. These are all appropriate options. But if you don't have regular periods, you should not be doing a true natural cycle. You'll need to induce ovulation in some way. Otherwise, it will be very frustrating. Advantages is this is a generally well-tolerated and faster cycle because you're on less medications. Your hormone intake is pretty normal. So meds like letrozole and FSH really don't have many side effects. Sometimes Lupron or estrogen can make people feel like headachey. So a controlled cycle, sometimes people don't feel as good. The timing is unpredictable. There's not a calendar in this cycle, friends. I have no idea when your transfer is going to happen. I don't know which doctor it's going to happen with, which day of the week you cannot take off work. I will find out five to seven days ahead of time based on what your body's doing. It's also less predictable. I don't have control. That's one of the problems. So if your follicle is mature and your lining is not ready and you're starting to surge, I can't do anything about it. I can't now give you medication to thicken your lining. We just missed the boat on that cycle. And that can happen also. However, once you start to ovulate or once you use a trigger shot, this can set the timing of the transfer. So similarly, the trigger shots, the start of the LH surge. So the transfer would happen a week after the trigger shot. If you're starting to make progesterone, you base it off of that. But it's very much the same where we're targeting ultimately the sixth day of progesterone as the transfer date. And you can use vaginal progesterone because we're just supplementing your progesterone here. So that's a huge advantage is that because you ovulated, you made progesterone. Officially, I would be right to give you no progesterone. Your body's making it. But most of the time, we do want to give you some progesterone. So vaginal progesterone is not a big intramuscular injection. That's a pro. I'm not going to act like it's easy peasy either. It can cause vaginal irritation and discharge, and it's typically more expensive. But you can use vaginal progesterone instead of the injectable. The transfers on the sixth day of progesterone. And then similarly, you're two weeks and five days pregnant the day of the transfer. You keep using your progesterone. You have a pregnancy test at four weeks pregnant or nine days later. You follow the HCG levels, get early OB ultrasounds, and continue the progesterone until about nine weeks. There are different patient circumstances where different protocol types are better or worse. So history of a thin lining. 
Typically, a modified natural cycle, specifically with gonadotropins, trying to get you to make more than one egg, that might be really nice for you. History of endometriosis. I really want to do a cycle that has some Lupron. That's a controlled cycle. There are other protocols, like a very suppressive protocol, where you use Lupron and Letrozole for a couple months leading into the protocol for the start of the estrogen. And that's another protocol for endometriosis, but it's essentially a controlled cycle. And there's also other testing that might shift certain things. And one of those is an ERA or the endometrial receptivity analysis test. All I will say is this on the ERA. Studies have clearly shown it is not indicated for everybody, should not be done before the first transfer. And even when done after just one failed transfer, which is a relatively common event, people who did an ERA and shifted the date of their transfer based on those results had less likelihood of pregnancy than people who just stuck to the traditional transfer on day six. That is what the most recent evidence shows. So if your doctor's saying, we should do an ERA before you do any transfers, I really want to know why. I'm not saying never is it appropriate. Maybe you only have one embryo. Maybe you have a history of implantation failure or pregnancy loss in the past. There are circumstances where it could be. But just in the average person, the ERA might cause more harm than good. And I think that's really important that clinics aren't just making you wait longer and spend more money just because they can. So ask, why is this test indicated for me? And what about the recent data that shows that without a history of implantation failure, people who had an ERA had a lower chance of pregnancy? I will make an episode soon on implantation failure or thin lining and some of these very specific topics within the embryo transfer. But this was just an overall overview of the frozen embryo transfer and some of the things I want my patients to understand about different protocol types. I am now going to answer a few questions for fertility's sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer your questions. These questions can be asked on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. You can also call into the As a Woman voicemail, and we are about to be recording another Q&A episode from the voicemail questions. We have been getting fabulous questions there, so keep this up. The number is 657-229-3672. Again, that's 657-229-3672. All right, question one. How long after a DNC would you recommend trying again? I had a missed miscarriage. I am so sorry for what you went through. What I want for my patients is I follow their HCG levels down after a DNC to make sure it gets to zero. And that is because if it doesn't, that could be an indication that a small piece of placenta was left behind, which could cause scar tissue inside the uterus. Typically, this might take longer if you had a higher HCG level or you made it further along in the pregnancy. But I would want your HCG to get to zero. And then as soon as it does, you can try again. All right, next is can fallopian tubes be unblocked with surgery? Ultimately, no. That doesn't mean people don't try. I have seen so many patients go through surgery, their tubes are damaged or they have scar tissue. Somebody tries to open it up. And do you know what happens? It closes back up and now it's a dilated block tube called a hydrosalpinx, decreasing your chance of pregnancy by 50%. And now you have to go have another surgery to have the fallopian tube removed. It is very rare that unblocking a tube will be successful in functionality of the tube 
without significant risks like an ectopic pregnancy or hydrosalpinx, and in almost no circumstances does that make sense when ultimately for tubal factor, the majority of patients are going to need to undergo IVF and you are likely setting yourself up for a second invasive surgery if that tube is just not removed. All right, risk of pregnancy with a uterine polyp. I conceived before I had my surgery to remove the polyp. Ultimately, none at this point. We do worry about the inflammatory impact of a polyp on a placenta being able to grow in. But if we think about a uterus, it has a lot of different surface area. And so presumably your placenta just implanted in a different place. That polyp is just there and it's not going to impact the pregnancy at all. So once you have been able to achieve that pregnancy state and you've made it to the point where you have a baby with a heartbeat and a placenta that has grown in, I'm not worried that you're going to have a further issue with your pregnancy. What are your thoughts on breastfeeding during a frozen transfer? I am not a fan. I am a fan of you breastfeeding your baby absolutely as long as you want to. If you conceive naturally in that timeline, that's completely different. Your frozen embryos are frozen. They are not getting freezer burn as we already talked about. And so there should be no rush to need to transfer them. When you breastfeed, your response to medications is going to be less predictable. You are going to have a higher chance of breakthrough ovulation or having a uterine lining that could be on the thinner side. And that is because of the impact of the hormones of breastfeeding. I want patients to be done breastfeeding before we do a transfer. Why is there so much bloating and discomfort for a few days after egg retrieval? Well, I think this is an interesting point. In our brain, we often think about these big fluid-filled follicles that are being drained at the time of the egg retrieval, thinking that we should wake up and feel just fine. However, often what happens is that the follicles can refill with blood. And that's pretty standard. I mean, we are putting a needle inside the ovary. So just like if I poked a needle in your arm, you might bleed. So these follicles can be filled with blood. And what can happen is that then you're feeling really bloated and heavy and crampy as these ovaries are working to heal. Also, you just had peak estrogen levels. The higher your estrogen is, the more unstable your blood vessels are. This causes what we call third spacing of fluid, where the water component of your blood starts to leak out of the blood vessels and get into your abdomen. In severe forms, this can be OHSS or ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. But even in non-severe function, just around an egg retrieval, you have your peak hormone levels. And in this time period, you have a lot of bloating and your fluid is getting in your abdomen and that can be causing you to feel even more bloated. This will resolve around the time your period comes. So this is temporary. However, you should take it easy. Definitely don't have heavy exercise during this time. Definitely no intercourse. And this is why we really don't like you traveling immediately after an egg retrieval. All right. And the last question is, is ICSI needed if you're doing pre-implantation genetic testing, which is genetic testing of your embryos? Typically, yes. ICSI is definitely needed if there's any male factor or I prefer it if there's any unexplained infertility or concern for fertilization issues. We do prefer it with PGT because you're not going to get contamination from the sperm. Is it the only option? No. There are some circumstances where you can do conventional fertilization and still do genetic testing. But most of us prefer ICSI because then you know you're just putting the one sperm in the egg 
egg. There's not a lot of sperm DNA getting stuck to the outside of the embryo, which could contaminate or make the results harder to interpret. Also, we really want to get those highest fertilization levels possible, and ICSI usually does achieve that for us. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and this week's For Fertility's Sake Q&A. Again, you can ask your questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call the As A Woman voicemail 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.